as many as 18,000 migrants could cross the southern border daily once the Trump-era Title 42 health regulations is lifted later this week. Increasing the strain on federal officials already stretched thin trying to contain the immigration crisis. Over the next few weeks, every major news outlet will have extensive coverage of the flood of immigrants trying to enter the United States. There will be finger-pointing, blame, and aspersions as to who and which party is responsible. In this podcaster's opinion, the blame and lack of action taken to mitigate this immigration crisis lands squarely on the shoulders of the United States Congress. Congress's failure to pass any meaningful immigration reform has stretched more than two decades. Over and over, their attempts have failed, including bipartisan efforts and those with strong presidential backing. Congress has not legitimately attempted to pass comprehensive immigration reform to fix our broken system. On this episode of the Latino Business Report, our guest is immigration attorney Alexandria Lozano. Lozano's candid interview will give listeners insight and a different perspective to U.S. immigration laws. Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. And welcome to another episode. Today we're going to be talking about a subject you hear a lot about in the news, and that's going to be immigration. But when it comes to immigration, there's a lot of people who just don't realize all the aspects of it and the effects it has on not only our economy, but our society and the country as a whole. With us today, we have one of the country's foremost leading immigration attorneys, Alexandra Lozano. Alexandra, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm really excited no. to dive into this topic. No, thank you for being here. Now, I got a, you, you're an immigration attorney. What got you interested in this specific field? Well, there's a few things. First, my family is a family of immigrants, like most of us here in the United States. My fat, my grandmother immigrated from Czechoslovakia. She came fleeing, actually, and during World War II. And so that had a big impact on me. And also, when I was in high school for a mission trip, I went to Belize and I saw poverty for the very first time in my life. And I thought, I really want to do something to make a difference. I want to do international human rights. And I realized we have international human rights crisis right here on our own soil and that's with immigration and so i decided to work with uh, with the latino community with the undocumented latino community to help them gain legal status in the u.s okay so for full disclosure here you're not latina i'm not latina i know it's so sad so disappointing i hate to have to admit it but it's absolutely true despite alexandra lozano i am not latina but my heart and soul are so i'm honorary latina you're, well, you know, that's okay. That's okay. Now, it's it's important. I mean, you understand the immigrant plight, and you obviously have a passion for working with Latino people. So, And your your Spanish is perfect. Where did, where did you learn your Spanish? I actually have my undergraduate degree in Spanish, but I say, honestly, I speak like when I'm Mexicana. My clients have taught me so much, and I'm, I'm thankful to them every day. They're my best teachers. There you go. So, Title 42. Can you explain that to us, how it came about and what it what is it going to mean? 
So basically, Title 42 was a way to block immigrants from being able to come into the United States, citing COVID reasons, health reasons. And that is coming to an end because now our COVID restrictions are ending. And so that means that it's going to allow people the opportunity to be able to come to the border and ask for asylum like they were already allowed to do. And so we're going to see exactly what's going to happen next, because if they can be processed through the United States. So the way that it works is this. If someone is afraid to be in their country, they can come to the U.S. border and they can ask for asylum. This is a completely legal process. And normally what's happened is the people are processed for their asylum cases. And so an example might be a woman from Honduras. Let's call her Suyapa, right? She has been, their gangs have taken over where she lives, right? They've completely taken over. The government has lost control and there's no police presence. What happens? The gangs come and they rape her. They gang rape her. Maybe she gets pregnant and she has to escape because if they, if she, if Suyapa stays there, they're making her be their girlfriend, be part of whatever this is, continue to be raped, continue to go through beatings and all of these other things. So she has nowhere to go. She can't go to the police anywhere, not just in her state or her area, but she can't go to any place to find a place that would be able to protect her. So she decides to flee for her safety, maybe the safety of her unborn child, for her to be able to survive. So she comes to the United States to ask for asylum based on what she's gone through by gangs that have taken over where she lives. And the way that it's supposed to work is they're supposed to give her an interview about what happened to her. So that way Suyapa can come and tell her story doing this the most legal way, saying, I want to come to the United States because I need protection because my home country will not protect me. And so that's the way it's supposed to work. And normally what will happen is someone will go through that process and they're either released, what's called release on recognizance, so they can come back another day to go to court or mm -hmm. they, they go into immigration detention. And then from there, the case happens either from detained or there's some circumstances where they're able to get a bond. And so in those circumstances, I mean, even if they're released into the United States to have a court date, usually there's some sort of tracking device that they have, sometimes ankle monitoring, or they have to report in person every month. It's very strict the way that this is monitored, because there's a false belief out there that when people are let in for their hearings, that they just disappear. That's not true. The numbers are very low of that happening. So it's, it's more likely than not that people are going to show up for their hearings. And there's a lot of things in place that make sure that happens. So now what's going to happen is those provisions or the way that people should have been let into the United States before Title 42 was enacted, making them way to Mexico. Now it's going to allow them to be able to have that opportunity to pass through. And now yeah. we're going to Yeah, let me interrupt you here for a second. Uh, Title 42 was put in place during the last administration. And that was for reasons, citing COVID is the main reason. Hmm. But to, to your point, when that was implemented, then people could not enter or they were without due process. They were just either expelled or not allowed to enter. You had camps, enclaves of people camping in Mexico waiting for to, to gain entry, which created a whole other situation within itself. But now that it looks like uh, later on this week that Title 42 will be lifted, we, Alexander, we already have a problem at the border. I mean, just thousands of people going. When that is lifted, what is that going to do to the influx of immigrants trying to get in to the U.S.? 
you know, it's an interesting problem that the United States itself created. And so now the United States has to figure out a way to solve it. I mean, they, they should have contemplated this when they put all of this into place. They knew that this was going to end at some point, right? So it's, it's a complex problem that didn't actually need to be so complex because if the U.S. had handled this differently from the beginning, we wouldn't be left trying to solve this problem if they would have just done what was the procedurally correct thing from the beginning. So now they are left with a crisis, an actual crisis, again, that they created for themselves. However, they do have some plans in place. I've read some things that they say they're going to do in terms of, you know, expedited processing and different things like that. I have a lot of questions. I don't know what, where their capacity is. Um, so um, something about asylum that I think might be interesting for people to know is, you know, you have a right to apply for asylum if you're afraid to go to your country. Now, I'll ask you, what do you think? So let's say I'm, I come to the United States, I ask for asylum. How long do you think would be reasonable for the government to make a decision on an application? Like, what do you think it should take? Okay. Knowing the courts are backed up, knowing the situation, I would say if I'm applying for asylum, have all the proper paperwork, do everything legally, maybe what, six, seven months? I don't know. That would be reasonable, right? Like, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. We would be able to get through cases quickly. Six, seven months, totally reasonable, right? Maybe even a year. I mean, up to a year. Yeah, totally. Exactly. But right now, we have cases that are seven, eight, nine, ten years. Years. That are pending. Ten years? These are not people who are being in court. These are not people who are getting deported. These are people who are just literally asked for asylum that that were even already in the United States. 10 years. And why? Because they don't have enough officers to adjudicate the petitions and all these different things. Yet, yet, all of these people seeking asylum and they're going to go and they're going to try to process all of these cases. How? They can't even process the cases that have been properly filed 10 years ago, right? So, like, this is not a new thing. And so the government, I mean, it's, it's wholly unequipped over and over and over to deal with the capacity issues. Um, and part of it, again, is because they put... Travas. I actually don't want to say that in English. Like, mm-hmm. travas, you know, so that, that for their for their own adjudication. I don't understand why they've made this so so complicated. So it's now, I mean, again, you know, the government is going to have, it's going to be in a really interesting position. I don't even know how they're going to be able to process all of these people that are there because they can't even process the people who are, who are here and who have been here and who are trying to get papers the right way. So actually, could we talk about doing things the right way? Some stuff Absolutely. I mean, look, look. About? Yeah, let's talk about, I mean, I just can't, a 10-year, so you're here, you apply for asylum, and it can be up to a 10-year wait just to <laughs> yeah. get a hearing? Yeah, yeah. Whoa, in an asylum whoa, interview, this isn't even court, whoa, like, what a, literally, like, it's an asylum interview to, like, just say, like, is everything that you said on here true? <laughs> what are they supposed to do in that in that 10-year wait? Well, they're here in the United States. They get a work permit for the most part, and they're just working and living their life. But, like, they can't leave. They can't go anywhere. They can't leave the United States. So it's like they can't even go, you know, let's say to Canada. They can't go anywhere. They're just here working. And so it's kind of golden handcuffs, right? They're they're tied to the United States. And, yes, they can work legally. But, you know, but what? I, I've had clients that waited over 20 years for adjudications of their of their asylum cases. It's outrageous. Wow. Well, okay, well, let's go back to what you want to talk about, about the whole immigration process itself. Well, I actually think, you know, it's, a, it's like a perfect example of do it right and get in line, right? Like, mm-hmm. we hear that all the time. So, okay, like, say, so one of the rules of asylum is you have to apply within one year of coming to the United States. So let's say you've done that. So now what? Now you're in line for 
seven years, eight years, nine years, 10 years. Like you've, and this is someone who's done everything right. Another thing, like, okay, let's say what a lot of us immigration lawyers would call an easy case, right? Let's say that, like, you entered the United States with, with a visa, you came from Mexico, you're on vacation, but you and I meet, I'm a citizen, we fall in love, we get married, and I'm going to get you your green card, right? So we're going to do that here with you in the United States. Simple case, and as far as immigration mm-hmm. cases go. Those, um, yeah, I, I, do, I do hard cases, but this is a simple one. Back in the day when I first became an attorney, it was four months, five months, six months, you'd be able to get your green card, right? Again, totally reasonable. Right. Now the wait for just something this simple, this obvious, someone married to a U.S. citizen who entered the United States legally with a visa, the wait can be two and a half years to three and a half years or longer to get that green card. And for the most part, during that time, you're not allowed to leave the country. Just to get so the green card. Yes. It's just like, imagine, like, imagine you're a businessman in Mexico, right? You're a businessman. Mm-hmm. You didn't expect to come, you know, you come to the U.S. to do business. You don't expect to fall in love and marry me, right? Now, now it's like you, you're here and you're like, you can't even go back to Mexico to do business, right? Because you have to stay here to wait for your green card. Like, how is that even, like, it doesn't even wow. make sense, right? Because, and this is all pre-COVID. This is like, you know, they, you know, the government loves to have their talking points about, oh, this was COVID, COVID. No, it wasn't. This was the wait before COVID. And so you can imagine how it's extended things. But these are examples of people doing it right. And I'm using quotation marks here because, you know, everyone says, get in line, do it right. So doing it right now, a, a Mexican businessman is going to lose his business all because he married an American. Like, and because the United States won't let him leave, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So it's just these these long waits, these long processing. It just, you know, the line is a line to nowhere. In addition to the fact that there is no line, which we can also talk about, but but like let's just let's just use these simple examples of people who have done it, quote unquote, right, and mm-hmm. look at the waits that they have. And you know what? Maybe if I'm talking, maybe your listeners are like, oh, two and a half years—that's not that long. Well, imagine what happens in two and a half years. People get married, right? Like, what if, yeah. what if you know, you're married to your sister and your brother gets married, your sister gets married, they have a baby, there's a christening, all of these different things. Life happens in two and a half years, and you can't go back to your country when you've done everything the exact right legal way, the way that the government wanted you to. It's not your family, you're, back in your country, your family, your roots, possibly your business. I mean, you're right. It makes it makes no sense. But let me let me ask you: Isn't there a visa out there that you can get that? If you uh, want to start a business or you're an entrepreneur and you invest like, what, 50000 or there, I think there's an amount that you and members of your family can get a visa automatically? Um, so it's called the E2 visa. It's an investor visa. And uh, you're right. You know, 50000 would be probably the lowest we recommend, even though there's no exact amount that they say. You know, you got to have something substantial. And then you could come if if the government approves your company. So I don't know, you know, I don't think that people working in the consulate are the best businessmen and women, but you know, if you ask me, but they, they get to decide whether or not they think you have a viable business and then be able to come to the United States. But also, I mean, if you think about it, if you are, I'm going to just use Mexico as an example, obviously, because that's where, you know, we always hear the demonization of the Mexican border. And I work with Mexicans the most is that, you know, the people who are here in the United States that are undocumented, they're not, they don't have access to $50,000 or $100,000, you know, despite they're extremely entrepreneurial people, very hardworking, but they don't have that kind of money and they're not usually educated. So it's not like it's very easy to get access to that. Right. 
But the point being is if you have means, if you have $50,000, $100,000, chances are pretty good you can buy your way into the, Ameri- into the United States. In theory, if you could also get an appointment at the consulate, which could also take two to three years, right? So you might have your money, you might have your business plan, and then also there's the delays at the consulate. And so, you know, this and that's is, the American consulate. That's the American consulate. Yes, it's the American been. consulate in, in the home country. So imagine, again, you know, we're closing the doors to people who want to come, bring innovation, who want to bring work, want to bring workers. And, you know, I... I think we can all agree that America, we have a little bit of a work shortage of our own, our own, you know, good old U.S. citizens here. So, but we've got people who want to come here, who want to work, and we make it absolutely impossible, even if they have money. And you're absolutely correct. We do have a labor shortage and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And I think one of the interesting things is when it comes to the Latino population, not only is the population growing uh, at a a very quick rate, it's going to double one more time before it plateaus off. And the latest uh, statistics I saw that over the past decade, Latino-owned businesses are growing about 44%, where everybody else, all the other uh, demographic groups, only their small business growth is only about 4%. So Latino is very entrepreneurial. They're growing. And as far as non-Hispanics, the angle of white, whites are actually, their birth rate is declining. So there's fewer, nobody's trying to erase anybody. We're having fewer and fewer whites, more and more Latinos, more people of color. The demographics of this country is changing, and there seems to be this resistance, and a lot of people, in my opinion, are using immigration as an excuse. Let's blame everything on somebody else, and heaven forbid, let's not have them in our country, ruining our country. But at the same respect, without that immigration or that immigrant labor, we couldn't function as a country. It's, I mean, they're the, they're the un, I, w- I almost want to say the unseen backbone, but we all see them. So we're the ignored, the, you know, whatever it may be, you know, real backbone of the American society. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely outrageous, I, in my opinion, that people would not accept the fact that we need the undocumented workers that we have, and a path to legalization would make sense for our economy, because they, they are the ones who propped up our economy. When we had to rebuild, the people who are out there are the Latino workers. It's just, they're, I mean, everywhere you look, you see Latinos working in kitchens, in restaurants, in construction. In, you know, in yard work or and all over. In, in agriculture, who's going to be out there picking those crops? Oh, my gosh. It's, there's so many there's so many things, you know, that, that the undocumented community does for us. They give us so much and really make our lives you know, what they are today. I was actually just having a conversation the other day about how, you know, when when uh, probably when you and I were both younger, we, you know, going going to work at like McDonald's in high school, that was like a high school job, right? You know, mm-hmm. but now teenagers nowadays they would never work at McDonald's. You know, it's like they're like, oh, God, no, you know, they don't want, want those jobs. But my clients are working there. You know, they they will, they're willing and they're happy to do that job and they'll do that job for 20 years. And so I think that there's, it's a respect that I think that we have to give to the incredible workers that we have in this country. They are the reason that we are as great as we are as a nation. And they are the reason why we're still standing post COVID because they are there doing that work for us. They allowed us to get the restaurants back open. They allowed us to have you know, hotel hotels back open. They are a lot. They're the ones that have the food on our table. So, it's it's really interesting the demonization of of undocumented humans and who are who are extremely hardworking. I it's 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 
impossible for me to understand truthfully how anyone could have anything to say about such a hardworking population and not want them here. Right. Well, counselor, let me ask this. Let me ask you this. What would you say to those that say all these immigrants are just taking our jobs? They're taking our jobs and leaving us good, solid, God-fearing Americans unemployed. I just don't even know how that can make sense with the labor shortages that we know that we have in America with so many people needing workers and no workers stepping in. And, you know, we've seen it where immigration will go we'll do a raid at a, um, let's say, at a field, like a picking field. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's no workers and they're trying to recruit workers to come do the picking and their fruit just rots. No one comes. Right. So it's like it completely destroys that company, that business it might even be a small business. So I, I think it's like I want to know what jobs are being taken that are so I mean, you know, college educated person is not necessarily going to be competing with my clients for a job like they're not necessarily in the same sectors. Right. So if you've gone to college, you're not I don't think that you're going to be going to work a construction job for the most part. It's not really what you're you're looking for. So I don't really know how like an undocumented worker is going to be competing for that that job. I mean, the majority yeah, of my see... clients are are, are are blue collar workers. Yeah. To your point, I don't see many Americans who want to go. Yes, I want to get on. I want to be a roofer in the Texas heat in the middle of summer or I want to go build a road or I want to go out in the fields and and pick that pick those crops and have some back-breaking labor for the next, you know, part of my life. So there, there's definitely a need. So where does the balance come for? Because, and this is my opinion, and my opinion only, a lot of this immigration thing, situation, should have been addressed decades ago. Yet the can keeps getting kicked down the road, and a lot of it because, in my opinion, it makes great political fodder. So it's kind of like, if you don't, if you have a situation, at least there's something to, to complain about politically, to actually put in the time and resources to get a new comprehensive immigration program, it's going to take some work. But it seems like nobody wants to put in that work. You know, I think also we've gotten so polarized about the way that we talk about immigration that we haven't actually seen other ways to do it. Um, something I find really interesting, actually, is, you know, in Dubai and Qatar, they have really different ways that they do worker programs because they know that they have a huge need for workers. They make it very easy to get in. And I know that there's questions about human rights and things like that in some of those those work environments. But still, there's a different model out there that, that we could look at, right, to see how we could possibly do this differently. And I think the thing is, I can at least speak for my clients who are from Mexico, what they want more than anything is just the ability to work legally and to be able to go back and visit their families. Because something that people don't maybe understand, when someone comes to the United States unlawfully, or as people call it, illegally, they are leaving so much behind. And most of the time they say, I'm going to come for one year, two years, work hard, go home, right? They want to go home. But the thing is, is that things happen, right? They know how treacherous it would be to come back if they left. It becomes really mm -hmm. difficult. And then also you kind of don't anticipate, yes, you earn dollars, but you live in dollars and life here in the United States is a little bit more expensive than you anticipated. Plus you can all of a sudden have things you've never had, like a car, like, you know, a, a big screen right. TV, right? And there's some things like that, but then, you know, also then they end up having children and their children are in school. There's a lot of things that they end up setting up here in their life in the United States. And when people come to me, they've been here 20 years and, you know, they've been unable to gain legal status. And they're like, honestly, all I want to do is just go see my mom. She's about to die. 
And I want to see her one last time before she dies. And it really shows how much you've given up because you can't see your own mother for 20 years, all because you come to the United States in search for a better life, to work hard, to be able to support Americans. And all they want is to go and see their mother alive one last time. It kills me. You know, every time I get someone papers and they say, they're going to go back to see their mom or their dad. I cry every single time. And I've done this thousands and thousands and thousands of times because, you know, to think about that, what that must feel like, you know, for them. And also like, imagine as a parent, right? You haven't seen your own child for 20 years. You don't know your grandchildren, like how painful that must be. And so, you know, I think my clients, they really want a solution where they'd be able to work in the United States legally, be able to go back and forth. And, you know, I think that people, it's like, citizenship or nothing. We give them nothing or we give them citizenship. And I'm like, there's so much in between that, you know, programs where people could work legally, where they could go back and forth. And I'm not necessarily advocating for any one way. I'm yeah. just saying there's yeah, a broader way to think about it. I mean, look at our DACA recipients. I mean, we have the DACA. There's st- that's still up in the air of whether they're going to be able to stay or not or what their status is. Uh, you have a, and I, I think there's a lot of people who don't realize that they may know a DACA recipient, they may know an immigrant, they may know somebody here that is, they may work with somebody or know somebody maybe doesn't have all their paperwork in line, but it's just one of these things that, as you said, it's become political fodder. I mean, the demonization of it. And what really gets me is that you don't see this same focus, you don't see the same demonization when it comes to Canadians, Europeans, and actually in this country, one of the largest growing population of immigrants is actually Asians. So it's like, why the Latinos? Why? I, I guess because there's a border. Uh, our skin color is, is, is different. We speak another language. Whatever the case may be, it's that constant demonization of this. When if you think about it or look at it, there's equally, maybe on a different type of scale, but problems exist at all of our borders or all of our port of entries. And over 50% of the people that are here illegally came to this country legally. They just overstayed a visa or something happened or circumstances in that way. So how do we fix this? Well, gosh, I wish I knew that. And if I knew, I don't think anyone would listen to me anyway. But you know what? I like to call it the privileged undocumented because there are people who got to come to the United States in a comfortable plane instead of having to risk their lives across a desert. But really, at the end of the day, they're both the same. And so we're demonizing people who are literally putting their lives on the line. I just think that I, I wish Americans would think, OK, if I'm going to cross a desert, put my life on the line. Right. You people and, fa- and your fa- and your and your family's life, too, because some people come with their spouses There's and children. children. Yes. Little babies. So you are risking literally to die in the desert. Why are you doing that? Why would somebody do that? It I mean, you have to know that their life is missing something very important. You're not doing that for fun. You're not doing that to take benefits from the U.S. government. None of those things. None of that is worth your life. Your life is only on the line because you know that you cannot survive where you are. That would be the the only logical reason why someone would do that. Because I I, I mean, for a million dollars, would you cross that desert with a coyote, you know, a smuggler? I don't think I would. I'll be honest with you, three days in the hot sun, in the desert, no water, no food with coyotes who rape you. And I'm including men in that, too. I have many male clients who have been raped by these smugglers. So for a million dollars, you know what? I think I'm okay. 
sitting in the United States in my air conditioned office working comfortably. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I mean, you and me, we don't like, even if we had a really huge benefit to do it, we probably wouldn't because we don't need that. But like they would do it to make $20,000 to come to a country where people are constantly trying to kick them out. And, and and for the benefit of the listeners who may not be aware of it, the coyotes, the coyote, these these are smugglers, human smugglers. So talking to some of your clients, counselor, is what's what's the average cost? I mean, what does a person have to pay to get smuggled into the US? You know, it it's depends. Costs are going up. Um, you know, it could be six thousand and ten thousand dollars. A lot of a people person? don't have yes. And wow. a lot of people don't have that money, you know, so they have to get into deals where they have loans that they have to pay these people back. If they're lucky, they have maybe a family member or friend in the United States who can loan them money. Um, and so now you've also like people who are just innocent people have to transact with something that is so horrific because a lot of these coyotes are with a criminal. Honest yeah. people have to have to transact with a criminal element. It's nefarious and there's no guarantees. So you could give a person, you know, $10,000 ahead for you and your family members, and you still may end up dead. not where you're supposed to be. End up dead, robbed, raped. That is... It's heartbreaking. It's sad. It, it, it is. And, and these, these aren't statistics. These aren't numbers. These are human beings. These are people with families. These are people with, with, with wants, wishes, desires for a better life, and that's all they want is survival. And you know, I mean, really, what's the difference between them and me and you? We we just got lucky to be born on this side of the border. I mean, they're no different than us, you know. Yeah. And that's I, I feel every day I'm I'm so lucky that my my family fled because of fear of being killed by a regime, which sounds exactly like Central Americans, right? And so my family fled and thinks to them, I'm here, you know, in America, and I was born lucky to be in this country where I don't ever have to make that decision. And, you know, when people will say, oh, I would never do that. I say, you know what? I, I hope to God you never have to find out if you would have to do that. I hope to God you're never in that situation where you would have to make that choice, you know, because I don't I don't wish that on anybody to have to figure out what to do for your life and to put your life at risk to try to survive. It's yeah. an impossible choice. Well, I've always been an advocate of a guest worker program. To me, it makes sense. What, what's your opinion on that? I love a guest worker program. I love a guest worker program. I think it works really great, probably for the people who, who would participate in it, uh, because I think they'd really get the best of both worlds. They'd be able to come to the United States, earn in dollars, have a good job, and then be able to go back to their country where they love to be. You know, the other thing that I think that people take for granted, you know, Americans, we love America, of course, but you know, People, you know, everybody loves their country. Like as much as an American sure. loves America, like a Mexican loves Mexico, a Salvadoran loves Salvador. Like that's their country. That's their food. That's their language. That's their people. That's their culture. No one wants to really be here more than they want to be there unless they can't be there. Right. And so the beauty to me of a guest worker program is that someone gets to have the best of both. And of course, I mean, yes, there's critiques on there's all these sorts of things. You know, I, I heard the rhetoric, oh, the problem with the guest worker program is they don't go back. I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen statistics, but we haven't really had a program like that in a while. The program that we have right now, um, like an H2B program, it's a guest worker program, but it's extremely tedious. It's yeah. very difficult. It's a joke, really. 
And uh, somehow Trump also ended up with a lot of the H2B workers, but that's a whole nother topic. But, you know, oh, yeah, all those all those blonde haired, blue eyed Swedens <laughs> came over to work in his resort. But, you know, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. So it's just, you know, it's it's there's ways we could do this better. And maybe it's not within any of the existing framework that we have or that we have ever used. But I think we can look at it differently. But the question I have, and it's more rhetorical than any question than anything else, when is when are things going to be put into place to fix the system? It just seems it's broken. It's getting worse and worse, and they want to blame, point fingers, but nobody wants to take the time. When I was talking about nobody, Congress does not want to take the time to come up and really seriously look at it. We need we we need comprehensive immigration reform, and nobody's doing it. They just want to blame put band-aids on it when are we going to actually stop and fix the system i think again. it's you know it's it's such an important question and i think it's also a question that we need to ask ourselves because as a society if our government is not fixing it i think we also need to fix our attitudes towards this and also turn to you know appreciation and look at the ways that people are giving to us if if we as a as a com- as a country and society could frame this differently look at each person as a human being and their incredible contributions that they've made to this country i think collectively we would all want something different i think you, you know, would think you would think but in the meantime look at our society right now we can't even get along with each other i mean are you red you blue you're for this you're against this i mean we've gotten very fractionized within our within our country and if, if you're not with me, you're against me. And, and it's ridiculous that are people resorting to gun violence just because they disagree with somebody. I mean, that is absurd. So I'm afraid it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it is just something that has to be a guest worker program makes sense to me. Come here, work, go back, invest in your own country, start a business, support your family. You know, go between the two, but make sure that you have go through the proper procedures, that everybody is legal. And the whole element of crime, you know, open board, we have open borders, all these criminals are coming in. Hell, you got criminals everywhere. And I'm not saying that's not an element, but focus in on that and don't focus in or don't just put everybody in the same category. As you said, people are here to survive, to find a, a better way of life for themselves or their family or to escape some sort of brutalities they've lived in their own country. Not everybody that comes into this country is a drug dealer. Not everybody is here to rape and pillage. Not everybody's here to take your job. But in the same respect, to your point, an attitude change, absolutely necessary. But how do we have an attitude change when the media and the, 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 the political rhetoric is constantly demonizing a group of people and just saying these are the people that are causing all of your problems okay let me get off my soapbox now it's supposed to be your interview not my not me talking but it's true i mean it's true and you know i hope by spreading information spreading truth also about the way the immigration system works is you know help open people's eyes and to really realize there is no line there's no line to get in the system is extremely broken and I, and i'm talking broken even for you know people will say oh look at the system's broken look at all these people waiting at the border well that's a huge example but the example that i gave of just being married to a us citizen not being able to get legal status in any sort of manner that would be appropriate is and quick is is enough to show that right as a U.S. citizen wouldn't you have the right to be with your spouse? It's sure, just, you it, think it's you know I think that and and interestingly something you said and I think it's true it's you know, I see this a lot with like white Americans they'll come to my office uh, with an undocumented person like to give them support and and then in um 
consult and they're like, oh, you know, Juan, he's such a good guy. He really deserves to be here. It's Juan, you know, I'm going to do everything for him. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I mean, of course, Juan does deserve to be here. But I'm like, there are 11 million Juans in this country. You just met one. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, he's, like, he's actually he's actually Juan in a million, right? <laughs> but I'm bummed. <laughs> He's one in a million. And you know, I mean, I think it's it's so interesting because I I find this to be like anytime an American has an encounter with an undocumented person that they want to help or they think they're a great person. I'm like, you you need to understand how many people there are like this person, you know, like, yes, that person is deserving. And so are the others. And like you say, you don't even know them. You might not even know that you're interacting with them. That you might be interacting sure. with them every single day. They might be at your office. They might have DACA and they might be dream- They might not be. They might be there completely undocumented and you would never know. So it's just, it's, it's interesting. And, you know, I, I, I hope I challenge your listeners to go and, you know, talk to people, talk to someone who's undocumented. I would love for someone to do that yeah. because then you really get to see what their life is like. And then you put a name and a story. I have thousands of stories I could tell, but it's not the same as going and connecting with sure. someone and hearing, hearing what they do every day. And I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that how many people wake up every day and live their entire lives in fear, fear of being pulled over, fear of uh, someone checking their papers, a fear of, I mean, the littlest infraction or just a happenstance of being in the wrong place at a wrong time could actually get a good person and their family, or at least deported or, or arrested. But, and you know, you know, one of the things, for example, I actually think is extremely dangerous is that no, no driver's license for undocumented people. Like that yeah, is why not? so dangerous. Like it is that, that way with no driver's license, you don't have identification. You don't know who they are. They they can't get insurance. I mean, if I'm going to get, if someone's going to run into me, I'd like to know who that person is. And Hey, you got insurance and granted, you may not be here legally, but you know, but you would get to recover something. That's the thing, right? It's like exactly. Accidents are called accidents on, for a reason. They're not an on purpose, right? So, like, if Juan is driving down the street and he hits me in on an accident, right? It's an accident. And now, it, you know. Because Juan didn't no, do it on purpose. Yeah. And I have no insurance now to help me recover with my medical bills when I'm injured. All because we will not Juan have a driver's license. So now Juan cannot have insurance. Like it just, it doesn't even make any sense at all, especially because people are still driving. And then that goes to your point where someone has a very small infraction. So it's like, let's say Maria is bringing her children to school. She's driving them to school, right? Because they go to school because they're American citizens. Mm -hmm. They have the right to go to school. They go to school. She's driving to work. Someone stops her because she looks brown, probably doesn't have a driver's license. They check to see she doesn't have papers. They bring her to jail for driving without a license. And now she's deported while her children are in school. It makes no sense. Alexandria, before we go, can you just kind of explain the fact that a lot of people may not realize that every country kind of has a limit to how many people that can come into the U.S.? So if you're a country like Mexico, right there on the border, there's obviously going to be a large influx or, or Central American countries compared to a small country on the other side of the world. For them, becoming a U.S. citizen or getting their paperwork can be, uh, can be expedited or can be a lot simpler just because of the fact that only so many people per country can come in. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. I encourage everyone listening to look at something called the Visa Bulletin. It's It will really help explain it a little bit more. But, you know, so for example, I'm a U.S. citizen. And let's say I have a brother who's in Mexico and I want to bring him here. The wait 
for the brother of a U.S. citizen is 40 years, okay, for him to come to the United States. 40, four zero, so, four decades. I'm pretty much going to be dead by the time that my brother could ever get here, okay? So, and in comparison to other countries where the white, the wait might be 15 years for a brother, which is already outrageous, but 15 compared to 40, which means, you know, if 40 years old, if my brother is 40, he's coming at 80, I hope to God he's still alive, you know? So there's, it's it, that wait and then kind of putting it by country. So this is the line that people refer to. It's absolutely outrageous. Also, let's say a, a child of a U.S. citizen, okay? So let's say I have a child who's 22 years old in Mexico. That wait right there is over 20 years to get into the United States. So that means that as a U.S. citizen, and I have an adult child in Mexico, it's over 20, 25, 30-year wait. And other countries, it's shorter, much shorter. But still, I mean, and what, like, how does that even make sense to wait 25 years to bring your child to the United States? It's strange. Yeah. It is crazy. And unfortunately, like I said earlier, it's going to probably get worse before it gets better. Um, Alexander, I have totally enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'm going to see about maybe asking you back uh, at another date to cover some more. But the situation we're facing right now, what do you see or what do you predict will happen next? And do you have any tips or any idea of what a possible solution can be? You know, who knows what's going to happen next. And I think you know, we've talked about some great solutions with guest worker programs or looking with workers and helping people gain legal <clears throat> status. You know, I, I right now, my philosophy as an immigration attorney is just one person at a time, one life at a time, trying to change each, each person's life. I know that my clients deserve to be in this country. They're the hardest working, kindest, most salt of the earth people that you've ever met. And I know that I don't, I don't think I can make big societal change, but I know what I can do and I can change one life at a time. And that's what I'm going to do. <sighs> yep. Okay. We definitely have a problem. Um, wow. We're definitely going to invite you back. Talk about some of this at a later date, but um, till next time, is there any parting words you'd like to, like to give any advice or anything you'd like to listen uh, have the listeners know just how dire the straits are for a lot of these folks and how broken this system is you know i just i really encourage everyone to try to meet someone who's undocumented ask them their story if they're willing to share it with you i think you'll be really moved by what you hear to understand the motivations what people flee from you know rape violence ch horrific child abuse I, there's so many things that my clients have been through, and I would say that without exception. I can't even think of one who hasn't gone through something so terrible like that. And I think if you hear them talk and you hear them firsthand, I think it will really change your perspective. And so I do hope that people take the time to meet someone who has an accent, maybe get to know their story, maybe they're undocumented, and you might see things a little bit differently. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandria. And... Um... Thank you very much for what you do. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Latino Business Report. My name is J.R. Gonzalez. We have been talking about immigration today. You can catch this episode anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us at latinobusinessreport.com. And we have an entire library of all our episodes also posted on YouTube. Till next time. And once again, Alexandra, thank you so very much for the work that you do. And keep up the good work. Thank you.